Hello, I'm Dr. Annaline Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, I've been lucky enough to speak with Dr. David Hallett regarding the ADA glossary numbers and their use, and sometimes misuse, in claiming from health funds and Medicare. Now, Dr. Hallett was in GDP dental practice for over 30 years. He's been an active member of the ADAWA Council, including a term as the ADAWA President. He undertook the full-time role of ADAWA CEO eight years ago. David is actively involved with the ADAWA membership in providing education, professional support, mentoring and guidance. Okay, so David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. As we discussed, I've got a series of questions that members have asked us to ask you. So I'd like to put those to you today, starting off with the question, who actually writes the glossary of item codes that we use? The Australian Dental Association writes the glossary. They have a specific committee, the Schedule and Third Party Committee, that liaises comprehensively with the profession, with health funds, with Medicare, with all interested parties in compiling the glossary. Yeah, now that's great. So you mentioned the consultation with the health funds then. That leads me on to a question that we get asked a lot, which is why don't the health funds always follow the intention of the glossary? So David, if I can give you an example of that. In the glossary, in the introductory notes, references made to an ability to essentially bill out or charge out for your treatment. Say you have a multi-stepped treatment item like a crown or perhaps a denture, a cobalt chrome denture, you've got to incur lab costs. So the intent of the glossary, it makes it very clear that it is it is appropriate. So it's okay to charge out at any time in that treatment plan. Yet often we have members who are questioned when they charge an impression. So why would that be? Well, the various funds have a range of business rules and they vary from fund to fund. And we may well get to talk about business rules later on in this discussion. But to this point, definitively, the ADA says, yes, you can charge at any time throughout the procedure. That's true, you can. But the, the funds have a range of business rules, one of which may be you can only the patient can only claim their benefit at the time of insert of the crown, for instance, or at the insert of the denture. Whereas in my hometown of Western Australia, our largest fund demands that you claim the benefit at the time of the crown prep or at the time of your final impressions for the denture. So I fully understand the confusion that dentists and dental practitioners throughout Australia feel, but this is where it stems from. Funds have their own rules and they have them for their own business purposes. Because they are businesses, of course. And I guess that's super confusing when you're working across so many health funds, as we all do. If one health fund is saying at impression and mm -hmm. then the other is saying at insert, gosh, that's difficult for our practice staff to know as well when the right time to uh, to invoice that is. They'd have to be really on top of those business rules. Most certainly. And imagine a situation where a patient doesn't declare whether they're in a health fund or not. Yes. Um, <laughs> and we do have patients like that because some do feel that some funny business goes on you know, if they declare that they're, uh, um, they belong to a health fund. Mm. So it is difficult and I sympathise with practices, but you do need to be aware. 
Fortunately, to my knowledge, there's really only the one fund that specifies benefit payment at impression stage or at prep stage. Most of the others, particularly the large ones, is all very much at insert. So the patient ha has to have received the treatment, completed the treatment before the benefit can be um, claimed. But of course, we've already discussed, as the ADA says, you have the right to bill the patient, but you may not have the right because of the business rule that you've signed up to, doesn't allow claiming until insert or completion of the denture or whatever. And that's the difference, of course, between invoicing the patient and taking the funding and invoicing the third party, who's the health fund. And there is a difference, of course, between the two. Also, Medicare is another third party that we work with that can have its own rules. Very much so. And of course, we would we would very much encourage all our members to understand the rules, not only of health funds, but also of Medicare and Department of Human Services when working with child dental benefit schedule or veterans affairs and some of our state um, run public health programs as well. And yet those are easily downloadable, of course, with a quick Google. So a question that we commonly get asked as well then, David, and this is by the people who've received that because their lucky numbers come up, their provider numbers been pulled out the lottery machine, perhaps, mm -hmm. and members ring up and they're being audited either by a health fund or by Medicare. And they say, why me? Why am I being audited? So can you give some examples, please, for why people may be selected for audit? Because it is completely random sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes um, it is That's just... my understanding, yes. And not... And the health funds are not always openly honest as to why they have, you know, conducting an audit. But generally, if if a patient was to complain about you to the health fund, because most health funds guard their membership, just like we guard our patients, they guard their membership very closely and they're very responsive to member complaints. So if one of their members was to make a complaint about your treatment, they felt that they were overcharged, over-serviced, there were item numbers on there where they didn't believe they received that service, the fund feels an obligation on behalf of their member to investigate. That then could trigger, if adverse behaviour is noted or potential adverse behaviour is noted, that could then trigger a broader audit of, of records where they might look for a similar billing pattern across a range of patients. So patient complaint is number one. The other one, which I think we've all been made very aware of, of course, are so-called outliers. So comparing you to your peers. So how come you do um, 10 times five more 523s than your peers and you don't seem to do any 521s or 522s? That's a common one, isn't it? Those, those filling surfaces, that really seems to get the health funds interested. It piques their interest. It does, and it's a very obvious one. It obviously comes up within their um, their metrics mm -hmm. very easily. The so-called bell curve, where the vast majority of practitioners sit in the middle in relation to their into their billings, but then the ones to the right, where their billings are actually quite different, and they could be different for very valid reasons. Mm. You know, we hear of endodontists and periodontists who get pinged for taking too many radiographs, for instance. Yeah. But then when we start looking at why some dentists only ever do surgical extractions and no simple extractions, or mm -hmm. they only ever seem, ever seem to do large composites but not small composites, mm -hmm. then that piques their interest. And as I said before, there can be some very, very valid reasons why that's the case, but you can understand why they might be interested. Yeah, and we certainly, I recall one member that got selected for exactly what you're saying with the surgical extractions, and it was because this particular practitioner was on a surgical training pathway 
and they worked mm-hmm. in practice one day a week and all they did was surgical extractions for their colleagues and we were actually given the opportunity then to explain that to the health fund and they were very accepting of that as a reason but in all fairness you could understand that that person looked very different to the other people in their practice yes there's others so high grossing practitioners practitioners who receive a much higher proportion of rebate from that particular fund compared to other practitioners. The fund would like to understand what is the difference between that practitioner and the, the broader practitioner group as well. They're the sort of sort of things that pique their interest. I've seen one as well, which was not just the number of a specific item, but actual number of codes billed. So it said, um, would say something like the your peers bill five codes per patient and you build nine bill mm. nine the so that number kind of, of services per patient yeah the average yeah. number of services thanks for helping me with the words but that seems to pique their interest too if you seem to be charging through more codes than others and you can understand that they would wonder if those were genuine or legitimate claims wouldn't they yes and you can imagine now in trying to understand high caps transactions mm-hmm. so if you were to see three patients in a row who all belong to the same fund the timestamp indicates what time those claims were put through. So a patient could have had eight or nine, the first patient could have had eight or nine procedures. The next patient might have had seven or eight, and the one after that might have had seven or eight. But we can see that the patient number two was only in the surgery for 15 minutes, but might have had seven or eight items. And then they start to look at the number of patients that that practitioner sees. So if you've if you're seeing a large proportion of patients from a single fund, and that can mm-hmm. that can happen, it happens in Western Australia in particular, but mm-hmm. I know it happens in other states as well with certain funds, a pattern of behaviour can be established where large amount of treatment is being done within a small amount of time. And, and so we have to be very careful in that regard as well. And, and some practitioners are more efficient, work faster, and there are often very reasonable explanations. But when a pattern of billing is established, you can see, like the other patterns we've discussed, it piques their interest. Yeah. And one thing that you and I have discussed before that I know that Medicare and the health funds are specifically looking for is something called upcoding. Now, would mm. you be able to explain what upcoding is for us, David, please? In its simplest terms, it, it's the practitioner who never does a single surface composite or never does a single extraction. So they feel for whatever reason in their own minds that the rebate for what they've they've just done on a 521 is not enough. So to, to I guess, uh, better explain to the patient why the fee is more than what the patient might perceive, they'll upcode to a 522 or a 523, or they might upcode their 311 to a, five, you know, to a 324 or something like that. That's something, of course, we would never, ever support and yes, we all understand that a simple composite sometimes takes far longer than it should have for a variety of reasons. But there's swings and roundabouts, isn't there? There's other single surface composites that only take five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, just because this one has taken you three quarters of an hour or an hour is not reason to upcode. If you want to charge more, really that's a discussion you should have with the patient rather than trying to um, claim a higher benefit from the fund. Once you start upcoding for a particular patient, you'll start, you'll do it again because you'll want to justify 
yourself more and more and ultimately you start to normalise the behaviour. And after a while, you don't even know you're doing it. But of course, the health fund metrics pick, pick you up on it. I think it's a shame because I think some of the practitioners who are upcoding, they're doing it to increase the patient's rebate in a view that they're helping the patient. Yes. But ultimately, the money's still going to them. So the health fund wouldn't take that view. No, the health fund takes that view that um, you, the dentist, are the one benefiting, not not the patient. Yeah, they would. Um, and this is part of a broader conversation as many, many dentists will often complain that rebates are low mm -hmm. for particular for particular treatments. And of course, when you complain to the fund about such low benefits, they'll say, well, you know, if you didn't all up code so much, we'd be able to pay more. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a um, perpetual circle that. Yes. So I'm being audited um, and let's just say I'm being audited because I do a disproportionate number of five surface fillings compared to my peers. And that's what it's. So I'm in, let's just say I'm in the 95th percentile or, or whatever. Mm. So I'm now being audited. Often when we see practitioners in that position, they will get a a list, I guess, of all the patients from that health fund and the health fund or Medicare will say, please, could you review these patients and tick whether or not your billing was appropriate? We have some practitioners who have had that happen and then they found to their horror that the billing wasn't appropriate for a couple of reasons. So one of the reasons could be simple administrative error. There's been a new person at reception and they've been putting the wrong codes in. And we have seen that innocently. We've also seen people working under directive to change codes. So the provider was unaware. We have seen that in the past also. It could be that when they come to review their documentation, their records don't support the claim. So what I mean by that is obviously we have a requirement under the uh, Dental Board of Australia to keep records of a certain standard. So the practitioner finds that their records don't meet that standard. Perhaps they have no records at all. Now, one thing that we find is that the practitioner then is very nervous about in that initial declaration stage saying, actually, I've had a look and these 10 patients, I don't think I don't think the code was used appropriately because they're quite frightened of the consequences. Mm. So what's your view on that? I think at that very point, that's where they should either come to DPL or to their to ADA branch and seek support. Because I think this is time to actually nip this audit in the bud, fess up to what's been going on. As you say, there could be some very valid reasons out of the practitioner's control. That doesn't mean necessarily the fund will be overly sympathetic, but at the same time, they're going to be more sympathetic at this point than if you try and draw the process out. So my advice is, yes, there may well be a penalty even at this early stage, but we've got a better chance of, of supporting you if we can get if we can mediate with the fund at such an early stage of the of the investigation. I agree. And we found that honesty is always the best policy. But also we found that with a lot of the health funds in particular, they've really surprised us and Medicare, where the practitioner has said this was a genuine administrative error. They've explained what's happened and they've gone, OK, can you just mm. give us those 10 fillings money back? And we've given the 10 fillings money back. The practitioner has given the 10 fillings money back 
and then the matter has all been closed. So I know that they're not always overly sympathetic, but oftentimes we've had just just that it it felt like it was going to be much bigger, but actually that honesty really, really, really paid off. Mm. And I think under those circumstances that the dentist is normally advised that yes, we're happy to close this matter, but we will be keeping an eye on you. <laughs> I think they're always keeping an eye on you, aren't they? Oh, Let's be I think <laughs> I think under those circumstances, you know, um, you could expect it to you'd have to anticipate the fund reviewing you at regular intervals to to see that you've actually you've started to do the right thing. Yeah, that you'll be on their list. Yeah. Now, another thing that can happen with the audits is not necessarily the ticker box list or to accompany the ticker box list. It will say, can we have the records of these patients to support the claim? So a question that we're often asked is, do I have to contact the patient now to request or to ask their permission to release the records? And, you know, isn't that going to make me look bad? Yes, I. Uh, this is a very common question and mm. causes a lot of even argument within ADA circles as well. But the patient has um, allowed for access to their records under the terms of their policy. So I know a bit like mobile phone um, contracts and so on, nobody reads them, but buried in the small print, the, the patient has actually provided the fund authority to access their records. Similarly, with the HICAP statement, I know the patient signs the little chip, not really understanding what they're signing. I think the majority of patients probably think they have signed um, the HICAPS chip purely so they can allow money to be deposited either into their account or the dentist's account. But it does actually say there about the fund's authority. Mm -hmm. And then the, on the other side of the coin, the moment we ac accept HBF benefit into our bank account, mm -hmm. we're abiding by health fund business rules. And of course, when we use the HICAPS machine, there's also a clause within the HICAPS contract that facilitates access to the records. Interestingly enough, the vast majority of patients, I think, assume the funds do have access. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to bear in mind is we are not the only health entity that gets audited. This is true. So dentists need to understand that if they go to hospital and they make a claim under their private health insurance, funds will actually um, request your your records as a as a hospital patient. And Gosh. I've been I've been informed that hospital audits are far far more um, common than dental audits, for instance. That now you say that. I hadn't thought about it, but actually that doesn't surprise me. And it's funny because you've just triggered a little thing in my head. There's another reason, of course, a dentist a provider can be audited. And that's if there's concerns about the patient billing, isn't there? About the patient's claiming, if you see what I mean. So the actual, not that the provider has an aberrant pattern, but that the patient themselves has an aberrant pattern. Sometimes but, they're actually looking at the patient, aren't they? They are, because there are some patients, for instance, who might max out their benefit every single year, for instance. Mm -hmm. That patient might might be might be peaked for whatever reason. We've also had cases where patients have actually falsified their own accounts. Yes. And in fact, the dentist is being audited, but for but for the reason they don't suspect that the fund is actually auditing the patient, not the not not the dentist. Yeah. 
One thing that people ask is, so we've talked, we've touched on records and our requirement to meet the dental board standard and that horrible moment where practitioners go back and their records don't meet the standard or in fact they have no records at all and I think the reality of it is is that most practitioners would have experienced a really really busy day and then they've gone back and then they've got they've they've gone home and thought oh my goodness I didn't write write those records for Susie or it has slipped their mind or the next time Susie comes in their record was incomplete for whatever reason so I think that it, it the, the honest truth is that it it can and does happen I think it's happened if it hasn't happened to all of us then I think we're kidding ourselves yeah I think that's you know. the that's the honest truth isn't it the honest answer is that not one of us is perfect and and so you know and systems can fail and and all sorts of things that can happen so these poor practitioners then will say to us gosh, I don't know what happened. Mm. Can can the health fund or Medicare or whoever the third party auditing them is, say, can they just ask the patients or examine the patients? But of course they don't, do they, David? No, they don't. No. So you need your records to support. Now, the odd time that we forget to write our records up, there's always a degree of forgiveness there. So we've already talked about patterns of behaviour. Yeah. So if there's a if there's a day where you simply didn't write your records up and, and for whatever reason that patient gets audited, you're going to be fine. It, it's We're looking at patterns, we're looking at patterns of behaviour here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting it, David, because it is the aberration, isn't it? It's not the my, like every other patient would have records, but that last patient. I always use the example when I'm talking of, um, to when I'm talking about records, I have two boys and they're little monkeys, bless them. And um, I got a phone call from the school when I was at clinic and one of my children had fallen and broken their arm. And I dismissed, I finished what I was doing on the patient, dismissed the patient and I bolted out that clinic at a million miles an hour. And my practice manager, bless her heart, rang me that night and said, you didn't write any records for insert patient's name. And I was able to then add them in when I was next back in the clinic. And of course they were appropriately timestamped and dated. You know, yes. so as in as in, say I saw the patient on Monday the first and I wrote the records on Wednesday the third. The date was Wednesday the third and I wrote records for appointment on Monday the first. So there are those things that happen, but that is an unusual occurrence that's not my usual pattern well with my boys some might argue they're constantly <laughs> no but that's not my usual pattern to dash from the clinic and not write the record so it is it's patterns that they're looking for isn't it it is Always and even the board you know where where dentists have unfortunate notifications mm. there is an acceptance that records cannot always be contemporary but the la the last thing you want to do though is hide the fact that you've gone back after the event and post-dated. Because that's where it gives the flavour of an intent to be deceptive. It does. That's when instead of it being, this was an aberration, this is not my usual pattern of behaviour, this, this was a day, the clinic flooded, or I had to leave early, or I simply forgot for whatever reason. It just gives that flavour of I'm trying to mislead. Mm -hmm. Dental board don't like that. <laughs> no, and nor do the funds. So no. both the funds and the board will ask for audit logs on occasion. Yes. And that is not a good look on no. an audit. No, it isn't. We've had to provide audit logs the other way as well, where in a legal claim, the dental practitioner's records were so good 
that the um, claimant called them into question because the conversation of consent was recorded so well because it mm -hmm. had been written in real time, typed by the dental assistant in real time while the conversation was going on. And it was so good they called it into question and we were able to provide the audit log to show that that was a genuine contemporaneous time and date stamped yes. record. Yeah, which was great. So I've had this audit and I've gone all the way to the end and some inappropriate claiming has been found. So that's claiming either where I perhaps the codes don't reflect the treatment I provided or perhaps my records don't support the treatment I provided. What's going to happen now? All right. So every fund I've worked with are most amenable to an appeals process. Yeah. So, all right, you haven't written your records up for a restorative appointment or a range of restorative appointments because for whatever reason you don't like writing up your feelings, you think the account is enough. Mm -hmm. We've already spoken about how the fund won't interview the patient or have an examination of the patient by a third party. But we know that the clinical record is only one small component of the patient's record. Mm -hmm. So you will have radiographs pre-treatment. You may even have some radiographs post-treatment. You may well have photographs pre-treatment, post-treatment. You'll have a chart to support, hopefully, your radiographic findings and your photographic findings so there are a range of other records within the patient's record that will help confirm that, A, the patient actually did attend. And the treatment was provided. And, the patient's real. And the treatment real. was provided <laughs> and the patient is real. And in many cases, there isn't actually enough evidence to indicate that treatment was provided. So once we've established the fact that treatment was provided, then the fund does start to understand there's a level of honesty there. And so we can start to ha have a new conversation about this particular this particular case. But of course, if you're so slack that you've done very little diagnosis as well, and that's not written up, mm. and there's been no discussions in the records about the 10 fillings you required, and then there's very little of any other supportive documentation whatsoever, then that makes life pretty tough. Similarly, if you didn't write up your crown insert, a laboratory slip, for instance. So yeah. there's a range of other other records that can help support the claim other than just the clinical notes. But the clinical notes are by far your best support. You know, you'll make your audit so much easier if your yeah, clinical notes are uh, up to speed. Make your life so much easier too. I oh, think yeah. it's funny you raised the lab slip because I think that sometimes the humble odontogram and the humble lab slip are overlooked in their value for what they actually evidence. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, okay. and I know photographs, you know, a picture speaks a thousand words. It does. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to take photographs and charge for them every single time. You know, photographs are great, a great educational tool, but they're also a great dental legal support tool as well. And in, in this case, a great audit tool as well. Yeah, they certainly can be. They can be very helpful. We always find them valuable, I must say. So oftentimes, though, people do have to give some money back, don't they, David? They do. And, and there are some times where no matter how hard we try, the, def the defence is just not there. And mm -hmm. people put up, have to put up their hand and, and hand some money back. Yeah. I know in some cases, you know, the dentist is being honest and saying, yes, I did provide the care. Sometimes they'll even get statements from patients that the care was provided and so on. 
But at some point, you know, there has to be some evidence that the high caps claim was legitimate, that the account was legitimate. And if we just have nothing, then at some point, as much as I hate to say it, money does have to be refunded. I think the other thing as well we've seen on occasions is where the health fund itself has a built-in requirement in its provider agreement that the records meet the standard of the dental board and support the claim. So the absence of records is actually a breach of the provider agreement, if you see what I mean. It They've is. Had, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, some funds are a bit, a bit stronger on that than others. So one of the much larger funds has some very comprehensive provider rules around dental records. Mm -hmm. The reference I've to the dental board, the reference <laughs> the, to the code of conduct now, of course, is somewhat moot because although the, although the code of conduct refers to records, it's a very broad sweeping clause, clause eight, in fact, under mm -hmm. under professional behaviour, um, does not get down to specifics. But you can understand, of course, when you when you start to see the dental board under the code of conduct talking about records under the heading of professional behaviour, you can see the seriousness in which they take clinical record keeping. Mm -hmm. See where it sits. Where it sits. So now we have the self-reflective tool, um, which has its place. But of course, for dentists who want a very strict guideline as to how they should be keeping their records, then we need to refer them to documents like the ADA's um, policy on dental records. Mm -hmm. Sometimes something more didactic is really helpful, particularly when you're doing a self-audit of your own records, because then you can do like that yes, no. Yes. And you'll see a pattern in your own records if you take the time. And in fact, there have been some studies in this that if you audit your own records, you'll identify that you almost always forget to put X. And then because you've identified it yourself, that will be mm. more at the forefront of your mind and you'll be able to build that new habit. So maybe that's a good use for a time when that crown prep appointment fails and uh, you've got a little bit of spare time on your hands, perhaps. And I think if you're in a group practice and you're looking at your colleagues' records, it would be a collegiate thing to do to go and have a word to them and say, look, you might want to just up the, up the standard of your records a little bit. You're vulnerable here. Mm, yeah, a difficult conversation to have, but a very mm. valuable one to that colleague. Because I, I know we're veering off the topic slightly, but one of the key features of records is that if for whatever reason you can't go to practice tomorrow and a locum comes in, would that locum be able to continue the course of care for that patient? Continuity and, of patient if, care is key. If, if the locum can't, then quite clearly your records aren't up to scratch. Mm -hmm. And although we're going on about health funds, in reality, what we're really talking about is safety and welfare of our patients. Absolutely. And so if we look at it in that light, and, and look at look at the ability of another practitioner to be able to make, continue care for your patient, then all this talk about health fund auditing and so on disappears. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It falls away, doesn't it? It does. One question I did want to ask, and this is always a very difficult conversation that we try to have with members quite early on in any audit if it looks like it's not going to be simple. So simple by simple, I mean either the records support the treatment or there are some very good reasons why their um, pattern of billing is different to those of their peers. 
Mm-hmm. And there are often, as you've said, very, very legitimate reasons. For example, there could be multiple providers using that provider number. If you have three OHTs using your provider number, you're going to have of more codes than the person. So, they, you know, there can be some very, very legitimate, simply knocked away reasons. Or when the colleague looks at the sets of records, they find two or three of genuine administrative errors. And they say to the third party who's auditing them, hey, I found these three errors. I'm really sorry. It's a genuine mistake. And, and those get, you know, pushed on quite quickly, as we were saying, they get closed very quickly. Although, as you rightly said, David, they will have their eye on you for a while just in case. But when we're having these more complex audits, we try to make our members live to the fact that there can be consequences to their provider number. Would you not agree? I couldn't agree more. And and I think that helps greatly then in the negotiations and discussions that we subsequently have with the fund. So that the dentist has to be on board, I guess, with the seriousness of the audit and the seriousness of the consequences that that may follow. Mm-hmm. And it, and if the dentist understands that, then I think it helps it helps us as as support persons helps them with the process. Yeah. So can you give some examples of some of the consequences just because I, I do want to be clear for people listening how serious they can be. Yes. Well, the consequences can vary from simply let the fund letting you know that we fired a shot across your bow. Mm-hmm. We've we've noticed there's some aberrant billing and we quoted some examples. We've mm-hmm. asked for an explanation, but we're not taking it any further. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know full well, they're now keeping an eye on you. And you may want to change that. It's nudging, isn't it? They call it they call it nudging behaviour, where they're, make, where they're making a, a simple suggestion to you mm-hmm. to maybe have a, a personal look at yourself. <laughs> And that and that's the nicest sort of audit, isn't it? Mm-hmm, it is. The next the next type, of course, is where they might ask for some funds back. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked before, we can negotiate that if we feel the fund has been particularly harsh. But then, of course, we can move to some more serious consequences. You may have your high caps machine removed. The fund may determine that they're no longer going to recognise you as a provider for a period of time, mm-hmm. which means all your patients who belong to that fund will no longer receive a benefit from that fund f- for you treatment you provide for that patient. So that is a very serious consequence, particularly if it's a large fund and you see a lot of patients from that particular fund, that could really, really impact your practice. It's going to hurt your business, David, because it's- people want to be able to claim on high caps. They want to be able to get their health fund benefit. So if they're denied access to that, then no matter how much they like you, it is understandable that people pay a lot of money for their health funds. They like to be able to use their benefits when they can. They do. You may well, rather than going to that extent, if you've got a preferred provider agreement with the Mm -hmm. fund, they may withdraw that preferred provider agreement. We've seen Um, that a lot, actually. Yes. So that's probably before they remove their recognition rights. So we probably yeah. got out of got out of step a little bit there. That's okay. Um, but of course, then the next the next one, of course, is an APRA notification. Yes. And fun, and funds are increasingly making um, notifications to APRA, and this is where we come back to how we behave during the audit. Mm-hmm. So, I've I've worked with uh, dentists who've been extremely offended by their audit to the point that they've been quite obstructive and rude to the health fund auditors in the way they've managed the audit. Now, I have to admit, some health fund auditors can seem somewhat overbearing, particularly when they've requested to come to your practice, for instance. I understand all that, but at the same time, 
those people have a job to do. Mm-hmm. They have bosses who are instructing them. I would stress to all dentists who are being audited that they be polite and that they cooperate as much as they can. If they have a genuine grievance about the way the auditor is behaving and managing their audit, then they should come to us mm-hmm. to talk about that rather than express their displeasure to the auditor. And of course, if it goes the one step further and they're so affronted that they're simply not going to pay the money back, then of course you can expect the fund to want to go to to a, another level and, and invoke a higher level of, of punishment, I guess, for use of a better word. And then on the rare occasion, the fund may choose to go to the police. Yes, that's pretty a horrifying thought, isn't it? It and is pretty course... horrifying, but I think the I think the APRA notification and the um, withdrawal of recognition are very, very harsh penalties. The, the the funds don't even need to go to the police because those those two penalties alone can be can be very harsh and very severe. And of course, the other animal we haven't discussed in this in this few um, outcomes is Medicare. And of course, Medicare is essentially the Commonwealth government, isn't it? So if you're <laughs> not necessarily somebody that you want to um, fall foul of, perhaps. No. And of course, they may want to withdraw your provider number altogether. And we don't hear of that very often. But that, of course, too, would be an extremely harsh penalty. Yeah. And impossible to run a business if that had happened. So Moving away from those harsh penalties then onto some perhaps more pedestrian or mundane queries that we get asked, more day-to-day queries, because obviously mm. those harsh penalties, that's the end point for a small number of people. And, and let's be let's be honest about this. It is a small proportion. Very small, very mm. small. But it's important, I think, that you always keep your eye on that as a... That it, you always need to know the worst thing that's going to happen, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. What do they say? Um Hope for the worst, expect the best or something. That's right. Hope for the best, expect the worst. That's the right way around, isn't it? So a couple of queries that we always get, and of course, ones that would be very familiar to you, I'm sure, David. A lot of practitioners ring up quite distressed because they get a letter from the health fund saying, well, Dr. Weston, I've had, if that is their name, um, we've had a look at your claiming and you've claimed for 10 crowns on the 31st of December, were they legitimate? Or alternatively, you saw Mr. Hallett and you saw Dr. Hallett and he, you claimed for a crown on his 1-6 on the 30th of December and a crown on his 1-7 on the 10th of January. Mm-hmm. So we've split that treatment over health fund years. Do you have any comments to make about that? Yes, I would always um, caution ever trying to, um, I guess, breach health fund rules about billing or claiming rather at the time of insert versus claiming mm-hmm. of insert. So if if the health fund's business rule is that you can only claim at insert, then only claim at insert. And if that all happened in the January, mm-hmm. then that's that's when the claim should go through. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to claim one crown at the time of prep in December and to claim another for the other crown at the time of insert of both crowns in January, I would strongly caution against. And that is a relatively easy um, metric for the health funds to pick up. And it's not uncommon for a patient to want to have four crowns or six anterior crowns before Christmas. But I think dentists do as much cosmetic, aesthetic type dentistry in December as they do just about every month put together. Um, And we all understand that. But of course, if three crowns went in in December and three went in in January, 
I think even a relatively naive auditor would think there was something a little bit suspicious there. Yeah, I think so too. And I know patients put pressure on you. They do. But if the patient has the problem, then the patient should talk to the health fund about it, not you. And I couldn't agree as I more, talked David. already, I talked already about health funds um, keen to hold on to their members. And if you've if you've been a member of a health fund for thirty or forty years and had very few claims, as as a member of the fund, you have every right to go and ask the fund. Look, I've made very few claims over the over my lifetime. I've got this treatment. It all has to be done in one hit. Can I spread my claiming over two years? Mm -hmm. Now, the majority of funds are going to say no. But in <laughs> actual fact, if you get the right person on the right day at the health fund, you know, there could well be some sympathy towards that. And I, and ultimately, it is the, the patient is the member of the fund, not you. Agreed. And so the patient should ask these should ask these questions. I agree with everything you're saying, David. And I have seen situations where a patient, the way that their benefits been worked up was to do with um, they had an amount per year and they've been getting, say, crowns and then a denture made. And it's all been part of the treatment plan. And the health fund has agreed a contribution with that patient for all the treatment, which is higher than they would have got within that claiming year for all the reasons that you're saying. So it's certainly something I've seen. But I think also you've teased out a really key point there, and that is that the patient has the relationship with the health fund. It is their health fund. It is their payment mechanism. And so many dentists are really trying to help patients out. Mm. And it's so genuine and heartfelt. But the reality of it is it is between the patient and the fund and trying to be a little bit clever or creative in that. You might think you're helping the patient, but actually you're hurting yourself, aren't you? Yes. And and we and although we might say to us, how dare the fund come after us? It's the patient that's benefited, benefited because they've received twice as much rebate as perhaps they would have had you billed appropriately. It's not the right way to do it. But also, the money still came to us at the end. We didn't do it for free. That's that's right. And of course, in some cases, the patient accepted the treatment plan because we structured the billing that way. Yeah, because that's the, on the understanding that they wouldn't mm. be as out of pocket. So for their financial consent, it wasn't for the total amount. It was for the total amount they were going to pay. That's right. Yeah. If you really want to help the patient out, write a supportive letter as to why the treatment should all be done in one in one hit. Yeah. And, and then the patient can take that to the health fund and the health fund can be the bad guy, not you. Yeah, because they are the third party payment mechanism at the end of the day. That's right. So and along those lines, another query that we often get relates to the difference between a study model and a working model, because the health funds will pick up that study models were claimed for and they'll want to know, I guess, not necessarily why, but it might pique their interest if it's happening all the time. So can you just explain the difference between a study model and a working model, please? Well, a study model is a diagnostic tool. It's a diagnostic item number and is reserved for that purpose. And as we well know, we talked about radiographs and photographs forming part of the patient's record. Study models do as well. And they should be retained as part of the patient's records for as long as you're retaining patient records for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A working model is used very much as part of that course of care for that patient, as are your preliminary impressions for your dentures or your opposing model for a crown prep. They are working models and cannot be claimed as study models per se. So if you're taking study models, for instance, when you do a mouth guard, you could expect the health fund to actually query that. 
-hmm. Or if you're taking your study models on the same day as you're doing your cram preps, sure, there could be an op there could be a chance where that's legitimate, where you have actually taken study models on the same day as the prep, and you're you're going off to discuss with the lab. But really, if they're a diagnostic tool, one would think under most circumstances those study models would have been taken prior to the cram prep appointment because they're part of your workup and part of your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It goes the other way as well, of course, because there is an expectation, as you've said, study models form part of the clinical record and therefore ought to be kept for as long as we're keeping our clinical records, which is um, as long as possible. But the yes. requirement is um, seven to 10 years in an adult. They give a broad range. So in that situation, though, with working models, they are not required to be kept as part of the dental record, are they, under the same terms? No, they're not. But of course, from a dental legal point of view, retaining some models on occasion can actually be quite, quite beneficial. We can't really provide advice on what models should be retained and what shouldn't, but there would be some models for complex cases, that working models that you should really hold on to. Yeah. Um, you know, some complex treatment failed within a relatively short space of time. Those working models could actually be quite quite beneficial to you for additional diagnosis or in fact as part of a referral process down the yeah. track as well. I agree but I remember back in the day David and you'll remember back in the day as well when we used to make full full dentures for people quite routinely it would have been perverse to suggest that we would keep that working model because of course it was destroyed as in part of the investment process wasn't mm, it so i think it goes both ways like there are some working models you couldn't keep because as part of the process particularly in denture making that working model is destroyed just by the very nature of that process so of course but there are some you're quite right particularly those complex works where it's incredibly helpful or if you're going to be doing treatment for the patient in the future it can be helpful to have that model and of course um are using the concept of, of, of um crowns and dentures again I know that's twice I've mentioned dentures in two minutes but it can be really helpful to have those models to be able to make a special tray for the cobalt chrome denture rather than having to retake another impression just can be mm. helpful tip and, and when we talk about study models as well of course they should be a diagnostic quality as well yes yeah. a bit like our radiographs and our photographs they too should be a diagnostic quality indeed to, to um, facilitate a quality diagnosis yes and it's always so helpful to have a quality diagnosis, of course. Um, just two more questions, if I may. And they're kind of a bit, well, they're quite different, actually. So, David, what about treating friends and family members and then charging their health funds for that treatment? Because there is some mixed opinion about that, isn't there? There is. Once most health funds, if you're to read their business rules or their provider rules, there will be a clause in relating to treating family and what the definition of family actually means. But not only family, they'll also talk about colleagues within the practice and staff within the practice as well. Mm -hmm. And every fund does seem to have a slightly different interpretation. So my advice is if you ever want to treat members of your own family and practice staff and you're unsure then you should check with the fund first. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, the member, the health fund member should check rather than the dentist. Because it's their fund, as we were saying. It's, it's their, their, fund. their party payment arrangement. Yeah, it is. Now, in some cases, the fund will say, the, the rules will say, no, you can't treat your husband or wife or you can't mm -hmm. treat your daughter. But those same funds may well still 
on on um, application may fund um, a high cost consumable or lab work that contributed to that work. Now, I would always, this is why you should talk to the fund first rather than after the treatment. So don't, don't do all the treatment and then necessarily expect that you're going to get something back for the lab work or the high cost consumable you used. You talk to the fund first. It goes back to transparency as well, doesn't it? We've just we've touched on transparency a few times in our chat, but being really transparent, they might say no, but they might mm. also say yes. But also that transparency and that honesty does sort of, I guess, paint a pattern of behaviour and professionalism too, as opposed to the other side of the coin, which is a practitioner who perhaps is trying to be misleading or deceptive. Yes. Now, this is a particularly harsh rule because the family member has paid their um, membership subscriptions to the fund for many years. The, the, the family, the dentist who's the family member is trusted. That's the dentist they want to see. And so why shouldn't they? And why shouldn't they get a rebate? That's, I totally concur with that. And that's a discussion that the health fund member should have, have with the fund. And I would also say that if you are treating family members and, and a benefit is going to be paid, that if you're going to be providing treatment that is outside your normal sphere of treatment, so you're providing your family member with a range of treatments or a lot of treatment that you would not normally provide your patient, so it doesn't normally follow your demographic in terms of the way you, the way you use item numbers and the way you bill, you might want to just qualify that with the fund as well because that will peak the fund's interest as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're suddenly using item numbers that you never ever normally use on a family member or a staff member, um, you could expect a question mark. And you might different. say, how on earth does the fund know that that staff member works in your practice? I don't know, but they seem to find <laughs> out sometimes. <laughs> They certainly do. Thank you, David. And just one last question, if I may. Um, we have in the past have members who have been challenged by a health fund for something which we feel or the member feels has, goes against the intent of the glossary. So an example would be regarding the use of their whitening codes. In those past, the members have asked the ADA to, they've contacted the ADA and asked for insistence in seeking an interpretation to pass for the health fund. That's something the ADA are able to do, isn't it? I'd strongly encourage it. Rather than trying to have the argument yourself with the fund, come to us, seek our interpretation, and if we agree with you, then we'll support you. Thank you so much, David, for that relevant and helpful content, and thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.